0: Uh, we're in this wonderful series right now called Life in the Third Person, and when we say third person, we are speaking, of course, of the third person of the Trinity, and of whom do we speak? We speak of that topic that is often neglected or often misinterpreted, mistaught in churches all across the world. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and so we've been studying the Holy Spirit. We have looked uh, week one, we, we said, who is the Holy Spirit? And we talked about the fact that he is a he. He is a person. He is not an it. And in week two, we said, what does Jesus have to say about the Holy Spirit? We looked at John's gospel. We saw what he had to say there. And then in week three, we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where when you come by faith, you are immersed into the life of the Spirit. You are immersed and baptized in Christ, and you have your identity with him, and all that he has, he gives to you. And we talked then in the following week about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, where when you come by faith, you are changed. You become different. You don't stay the same. He does a transformative work and you're changed from the inside out. And then last week, we talked about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, where God puts his seal on the Christian and you are set aside for his purpose and uh, you are sanctified and, and you have assurance. You've got security in who you are in Christ and in your salvation, that you can't lose it. You didn't do anything to gain it. You can't do anything to get rid of it. And tonight we're going to look at another fascinating aspect of life in the third person. I grew up in South Dakota. If you have been to South Dakota, uh, if you're not from there, or if you've heard about South Dakota and you understand it's more than just a tax write-off for the government, you might You might have a few things come to mind. One might be a certain tourist attraction on the west side of the state, the most famous sculpture in America, and it's called Mount Rushmore. And it's the four faces of our beloved presidents uh, carved into the side of a granite mountain there in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Uh, That is the the well-known side of the state. I come from the boring side of the state. I come from the southeast uh, corner of South Dakota, uh, but it was a wonderful little town I grew up in called Sioux Falls, and you know what? We had our own sculpture in Sioux Falls, South Dakota that we were awfully proud of, nowhere near as big as Mount Rushmore, nowhere near as well-known, and in fact it wasn't an original sculpture, it was a replica. It was one of a handful of replicas of a much, much more famous sculpture by Michelangelo called the Statue of David. Uh, which the original is in Florence, Italy, but there's another one in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And it looks just like the one in Florence, except not as awesome. Uh, But it is ours, right? And we're awfully proud of it. It came from a, a, a bronze cast of Michelangelo's David, and of course it, it is the biblical David, uh, and uh, it's rather large, and you, you walk by it, and when you look upon it, if you didn't know what it was, you wouldn't automatically think, well, that's, that's, that's David from the Bible, because there's really nothing that would identify him as the biblical David. David. He, he's not uh, kingly David. He doesn't have a crown or anything. He's not young shepherd boy David. There's no sling or staff in his hand. In fact, he's, he's sculpted in the tradition of the great you know, uh, Renaissance sculptures, which is to say, it's a big naked guy. All right? He's just David in the buff, which is a sight to behold in the winters of South Dakota. Because it can get to be well below zero, and we can get snow drifts about yay high. And so you see this guy, and uh, you feel sorry for him, quite frankly. And it can prompt uh, the crafting of many a prank in the mind of your average high school boy, of which I was one in the 90s. And now that I'm 50, I can admit to you, because I'm not likely to get in trouble for this, that I and some of my buddies may or may not have gone down to that park where the statue of David stood, surveying the snowy landscape, and we went down there and we put a diaper on him one night. (laughs) I kid you not, you know, uh, did him a solid, you know, just looking out for the man's dignity. You know, in, in the cold South Dakota winter. But that story reminds me of another story involving the original statue of David. You see, Michelangelo carved that statue from a solid block of marble. And as Michelangelo stood in his studio, just, just looking at that block of marble, the story goes that his friend was with him, and he inquired of the artist how he planned to go about carving the statue of David. And reportedly, Michelangelo replied, he said, I'm going to chip away everything that is not David. And you want to know something, Christian? Uh, Your life, spiritually speaking, is a process. It's a process whereby God takes a block of marble. That's you. That's me. And by the Holy Spirit, and in conjunction with the events... And trials that we endure in life, he proceeds to slowly, methodically chip away everything that does not resemble Jesus Christ. And we call this process sanctification. It's where you are shaped, you are sculpted, you are molded into a reasonable facsimile of Jesus Christ. And that is the subject matter of this chapter that we're looking at in Romans tonight. It's Romans chapter 8. Happens to be my favorite chapter in all the Bible. I think it's the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And this, uh, the intended audience here is the believer, because sanctification is is really only applicable to the Christian. Now, there are passages in Scripture that a non-believer can walk in here, and they can hear us talk about things, and they might reap a benefit from that. This is not one of those chapters. This is geared toward the believer. And with that in mind, I ask you this question at the top of your notes. It's this, what are two things Believers uniquely benefit from. What are two things that we benefit from? And the first in, in your notes, the first thing is the help of the Spirit. The help of the Spirit. You know, The Holy Spirit, uh, subject uh, of this series, we've noted that he's been present in Scripture since the very beginning. We are studying Genesis on Sunday mornings. We read in chapter 1, the second verse, that he hovered over the face of the deep, of the darkness. He was present at creation and through that created order he brought life and order just as he does now in the hearts of human beings. We see all through the Old Testament he's at work with Moses. Moses says, I can't handle this in the book of Exodus. I need help. God says, you do need help. Bring out the leaders from among you, 70 leaders, and the spirit I put on you, I'm going to put on them. And he did. In the book of Judges, you got guys like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and Barak and everywhere God uses these men, uh, it says that the Spirit comes upon them each and every time. In the book of First uh, and Second Kings, God says to the very first king, Saul, he says, uh, here will be a sign that I have made you king. The Spirit of God will rest upon you and you, you will be charged, not the book of Kings, but the time of Kings, you will be charged to do my will, but it's going to be by the Spirit's power that you will accomplish this. And then we see David follow Saul, and when he's anointed king, the Spirit comes upon him. And it never leaves, as far as we can tell, from the Old Testament. When the Israelites are exiled into Babylon, God comes upon his prophet Daniel during that time of exile, gives him a knowledge that nobody else has at that time. And when the people finally come out of exile, they come back to the land, there's a man named Zerubbabel. And uh, he's going to rebuild that temple. And God gives him encouragement. And he says what? You all know this. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit you will do this. And so we see all of this. And, of course, Jesus Christ, the classic prophet, priest, and king, how does he begin his ministry? He's there in the Jordan. John is baptizing him. And what, what comes and rests upon him? It is the spirit like a dove And so we see the Holy Spirit, we see that phrase mentioned in the Gospels 50 times. And when Christ rises and when he ascends, before he ascends, what does he tell his disciples? Don't leave town, boys. Stay here. Wait. For what? For the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. And so the work of the Spirit has been around throughout the dawn of man. Uh, The Spirit has always been at work changing man to become something greater than what he is. That's what Romans 8 is about. And we read what Paul says in the first verse we're going to look at, verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now I could say amen right there. We could all go home right there. That would be enough truth for us for tonight. But I want to squeeze a little more out of this. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together in your word. Thank you for your word. And we know that your word was inspired. It it was delivered through that Holy Spirit of which we study right now, God. And as we read, it is that spirit that indwells us that also illuminates this for our understanding that we might apply it. And as we apply what we read in your word, it is that same spirit that empowers us to put it to work. And so we pray for that understanding today that it may be fruitful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Paul writes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, here's what is interesting. If you read the original Greek, there's a word missing. We just read the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You know what word is not there in the original Greek? The word in. The word in is absent in the manuscript, English translators added that. Why? Because they helped it would convey the meaning of this verse a little bit better, as if to say, when we are weak, Spirit helps us. In those times when we have weakness, in those instances, that's when the Spirit gives us a hand. But that word in is not found in the Greek. And so that context is not here. And the most literal translation we could derive is really the Spirit helps our weakness. That's how this ought to read. That's better, isn't it? Why is that better? Because if you say the Spirit helps us in our weakness, what does that imply? That implies that there are times when we're not weak. There are times when, uh, you know, we, we, we don't need the Spirit's help but occasionally occasionally we do if if he's free and 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 we we call to him he he can help us out and what we need to derive from Paul is that we live in a constant state of weakness how many of you're like I am weak I got nothing brother Scott I need the help of the Lord Paul's saying we don't just have occasional times of weakness and in your notes The Spirit's help is constantly necessary because we are constantly weak. There's never a time you don't need Him. You need Him all the time. You need Him all the time. That's one thing for us to know and and agree with from a a biblical theological standpoint, you know, as if we'd sign our name to a doctrinal statement that said, man is utterly weak, and we're like, yeah, I believe that. It's another thing for us to confess that in a personal way that opens up our hearts for the Spirit's help. And Paul is confessing that right now. He had to learn this the hard way. You may know from 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about something. He refers to his thorn in the flesh. You remember this? Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh. And he talks about this, and he tells the Corinthian church that he asked God to remove it three times. Now, we don't know what this is. It's some affliction that he has. What is it? People have wondered what it is. Is it a a physical ailment? Is it a a temptation? You know, Is it it a mental thing? What is it? Scripture doesn't tell us. And I, I think that's by design. I think if it did, there'd be some crazy nutcase Christian that would deify people that had the same thing that Paul had. But it doesn't say. All we know is he was afflicted by this. He asked God to take it away. And what God ultimately communicates to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Not in those random occasions that you realize you're weak. My power is made perfect when you understand you live in a constant state of weakness. He goes on to say, Paul does, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, therefore... I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. How many of you only need the power of Christ to rest on you occasionally? How many of you would prefer it be on you all the time? Well, then you gotta boast in your weakness as a constant state of reality in your life. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm going to recognize this state. When you recognize your state of weakness, That's when the power of Christ can be on you consistently. And so he goes on in our our text in Romans 8 to talk about one specific area. One specific area that demonstrates our weakness. And it's got to do with prayer. Prayer. Look at Romans 8, verse 26. It goes on to say, uh, we do not know what we ought to pray for. We do not know what we ought to pray for. And what Paul's doing here is he's, he's taking what arguably ought to be the easiest part of the Christian life. Prayer. I mean, think about it. This should be the easiest part of the Christian life. There are things in the Christian life that are not easy. If I were to randomly select one of you and say, I want you to come up here right now, and I made you stand on this stage, and I gave you a microphone, and I said, I want you to preach the gospel to this group right here. Some of you would wet your pants. <laughs> I read a list a few years back of the top 10 fears that people have. Number one was speaking in public. Number two, death. (laughs) Death was number two. There are people more afraid of speaking in front of other people than they are dying. What in the world? And that's just speaking in front of people, much less sharing the gospel. So I, I know that, sh- that sends a shiver down some of your spines. Now, we're all called to share the gospel, are we not? Maybe not on a platform, but we are called to share the gospel. So that is a difficult part of the Christian life. There are other things. You know, if I asked you to teach, if I asked you to counsel someone, if I asked you to give some, for something that's very difficult, all right? Paul's talking about prayer. That's not a horizontal thing. It's a vertical thing. You don't even have to talk. You just have to think. Literally, it's thinking because God knows what's in your heart. And so he's describing something very easy, and he's saying this is something that exposes our weakness. Now, what is your biggest weakness in prayer? Some of you might say, well, it's being consistent. It's finding time to do it. Uh, That's not what Paul says. Paul says your problem is that you don't know what you ought to pray for. You don't know what you ought to pray for. How powerful is prayer? Jesus says it's incredibly powerful. In John 14, uh, 14, 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in his Son. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Is that powerful? Whatever means whatever. Now, I think the words in my name are pretty important whatever you ask in my name, what does that mean? Does that mean you just tack in Jesus' name on the end of whatever prayer? Lord, I want a Maserati in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) That's not what it means. What does it mean to pray in his name? It means to pray in accordance with his purpose, with his will, right? Things that are in accordance with, with what he desires. So that ought to tell you something. If he's saying, I will grant whatever you ask, in my name for my purpose. What does that communicate? That means it's awfully important that we pray in accordance with that purpose. That means we need to know what we ought to pray for. Well, that's a problem because we don't. We don't always know what we ought to pray for, okay? We're weak. Paul's saying that's his whole case right here. And so in that instance, here's what Paul says. He says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? He goes on to verse 26. He says the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He intercedes. What does it mean that he intercedes? It means he intervenes. He goes on our behalf. Now, we use that word intercede or intercessory. With regard to prayer, there's two major kinds of prayer. you got petitionary prayer. What is that? When you make petition before the Lord, who are you praying for? Praying for yourself. You're asking God for things. Lord, give me a promotion. Give me a a mate. Uh, uh, Lord, give me wisdom. Uh, Lord, uh, bless me with this, that, or the other. Now, some people feel guilty about that. You should not feel guilty about that. You can ask God for stuff. It's okay long as you have the right heart the right mindset to asking if he wants to say no he'll say no okay but people are like oh, I don't know I don't I don't want to I don't want to seem greedy does god have a finite supply of things are we picturing god with a big box of blessings up in heaven and you get there first thing in the morning and you lord bless me for this way and this way and this way and this way and then god gives you all the blessings and later joe comes along he's like god I'm asking for this he's like i'm sorry frank beat you he, he got here early. You know, you're, I'm out. I'm out. You come back tomorrow. No. God has infinite blessings to give. So that's petition. But intercession is not when you pray for yourself, even though there's nothing wrong with that. Intercession is when you pray for others and you go on the behalf of others to the Lord. And that's a beautiful habit of prayer. Well, guess what? Somebody is interceding for you. Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He intercedes for you, all right? In what situation? It's when you don't know what you ought to be praying for. Now, listen, you may be praying. You may pray all the time, but you're perhaps not praying for what you ought to be praying for. You might even think you're praying for the right thing, but you're not. Or maybe you have no idea what to pray for and you're just speechless. You ever find yourself there? Sure. Sure. So I just start to pray. This is how this works. Whether or not I'm praying for the right thing, what is Paul saying? The Holy Spirit steps in and says, God, uh, let me translate this for you according to your will. And he begins to intercede for you. And this is accompanied, Paul says, by wordless groans. Now some versions say with groanings too deep for words. Okay, now I've got some charismatic brothers and sisters in the Lord that interpret this and they assume that that's talking about the gift of tongues. Groanings too deep for words, okay? Uh, Now listen, tongues is in Scripture. We're going to talk about it when we get to spiritual gifts. Uh, in a couple of weeks, okay? Uh, the word for tongues in Scripture is glossalia. What does it mean? It means languages. Languages. What do languages have? They have words. What kind of groans are these? Wordless groans. Groans without words, all right? No words. So are these languages? No. So is this referring to tongues? No. I'm not even saying that tongues have ceased or don't exist. I'm saying that's not what this is talking about. That's all I'm saying. Furthermore, it's not you groaning. Who's doing the groaning here? It's the Spirit. Paul says the intercession of the Spirit is beyond words. It's beyond human expression. Your vocabulary cannot be applied to what the Holy Spirit is doing in this instance right here. We've got no words, English or otherwise, to describe the deep groanings of the Spirit, who is alongside you to relay to the Father what needs to be said, and he's articulating it that in a way that you cannot using the various, you know, combinations of the 26 letters of the English alphabet. He's doing what you can't, in other words. So it's not simply that we don't know how to say it. It's not simply that we don't know the exact words that we need to put in place. That's not how God works. I think sometimes people think, well, I got to say it just the right way, or God's not going to honor. Like he's up there going, okay, come on. Come on, give me what you got. And you're like, ah, uh, da, 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 da. And he's like, nope, nope, close, that's close. Try again, try again. And you're like, well, ah, uh, and you say it a different way. And he's like, no, oh, you're almost there. Come on, one more time. And then you say something else. And he goes, no, oh, you're never going to get it. That's not how God operates. Because the truth is we often don't even know what the need is. Yeah. Can you relate to that? Have you ever found yourself in that situation where I, you're just like, I'm unsettled? Lord, I got nothing. Have you ever had a Lord, I got nothing moment? Humbling, isn't it? Well, good news. When you got nothing, the Holy Spirit's got your back. And he goes to the Lord on your behalf. Here's verse 27 it says, And he who searches hearts, who's that? That's God the Father. Man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. He searches hearts. He who searches hearts, God knows the mind of the Spirit. How does he know the mind of the spirit? Because they are of the exact same divine essence. They are both God. They are two persons of that Trinity, the Godhead. He knows the mind of the spirit. Verse 27 goes on because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Wow. Is that good to know? Is that good to know? So what does that mean? In your notes, it means that the Spirit's relationship to the Father allows Him to pray for us in ways that we cannot. Because we don't always know the will of God. We just don't. I mean, is that true? Have you prayed for something that was not in God's will? Sure. As have I. You know, I've interceded for people in ways that were not in God's will. Believe it or not, the will of God and the will of Scott are not always the same thing. Uh, especially in my 20s when I was single, you know? And so some people hear that and they get anxious about that. They're like, oh, but I don't want to not pray God's will. I don't want to pray for things that are not in God. What happens when I pray something and it's not in God's will? Well, then he won't do it. And that's okay. You don't need to fret about that. Because the Spirit knows the will of God. He is unified with God. So you're saying, well, what's the point of me praying at all then, if the Holy Spirit's going to intercede for me? Prayer serves to unify you with God's will. you understand that? It's not about you convincing God of what you want that is the right thing. It's to unify your will with the will of God, you see. And so... We know from Hebrews 4 that we can draw near, we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. Have you heard that verse? How can we approach the throne of grace with confidence if you don't know the will of God? You can be confident because the Spirit does know the will of God. And so that ought to give you confidence. When you pray, uh, Jesus and Matthew, when you pray, don't be like the babbling pagans. Who think they will be heard because of their many words. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So why do we pray? To unify our will with His will. So this is what happens. Isn't that incredible to think about? I hope that takes some fear away as you pray. Okay, But this is something that we can claim and benefit from because we are weak. We are utterly helpless. The Spirit's help extends to us in that moment, and it pertains to the will of God. And when you talk about the will of God, there's another benefit for the believer, and it's this in your notes. We benefit, number two, from the sovereignty of God. We have a sovereign God. What does that mean? That means he's in complete control. He's in complete control. He sees the beginning, the middle, and the end All at once. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. Because he's got that inside information. You see. As Paul says, we don't know what to pray for. But here's what we do know. Look at verse 28. He says, and we know. How's that for a contrast? For we don't know what we ought to pray for. But here he says, and we do know. What? We know that in all things. And you know this verse. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Isn't that a good verse? Isn't that a sweet verse? That's one of those refrigerator magnet verses right there. That's a great verse right there. That's a grandma's crocheted pillow verse right there. But here's the thing. On its own, it's an incomplete thought. You've quoted that verse. You've sat with somebody who was going through a tough time, and you said to them, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that's where you left it. And it was meant to be encouraging. And it is encouraging, but on its own, it's incomplete. And it can often get misunderstood and mistranslated. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So to really understand that, what do you got to know? You got to know what his purpose is. What's his purpose? Uh, First of all, is Paul trying to tell us that all things are going to be good? Are all things good in your life? I mean, all things. Everything good? Has anything, at any point in your life, has everything been good? I mean, everything? No. There's always something awry. You know, all things are not good. It should be clear that everything in the world is not perfect. You know, I remember in Sunday school when I was a child, uh, our Sunday school class had a contest Scripture memory contest. Any of you ever do this as a kid? You know, a Sunday school teacher bribes you to memorize Scripture with some, some prize. And so, you know, it's up to you. You can memorize. You, you pick the verses, and you come in, and you're like, this week, and you stand there, and you say your Scripture memory verse or whatever, and we would get to pick our own. And so naturally, we want to memorize as many as we can. And so the first verse everybody memorizes is John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. <laughs> Got it. That's one. And then what's the next verse? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. That's two, all right? The the two shortest verses in the whole Bible. Now that's interesting. Those are the two shortest verses in the whole Bible. Jesus wept and rejoice always. One has to do with mourning. The other has to do with rejoicing. Isn't that interesting? But that that first one, the shortest, Jesus wept. What does that tell us? That tells us that all things are not good. All things are not good. I mean, if Jesus is weeping, clearly, not everything is good. What was the context of that? Lazarus had died. Lazarus' sisters were mourning his death. And so Jesus is weeping, whether for the loss and the death of his friend, or what he suffered, or maybe the lack of faith on the part of Mary and Martha, whatever it may be. Jesus was in sorrow. And so when we look at Paul's words here, he works all things for good. What does that mean in a fallen world where death exists and where pain exists and where sorrow exists? Does that mean God's going to fix all your problems? No. Does it mean, you know, man, I lost my job, but I'm going to get one tomorrow. Or I'm going to get my old job back. Or, you know, the wife's going to come back to me. Or they're gonna accept our offer on the house or, you know, whatever. Is that what it means? God's gonna work all things together for your good? No, it doesn't mean that he's gonna make everything to your liking. It means he works it all together for good according to his purpose. What is his purpose? Paul tells us in verse 29, here's his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. I want you to underline the word conformed. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, you've got to see the connection between verse 28 and verse 29, because without verse 29, verse 28 is just the prosperity gospel. It's just name it and claim it. And that's a lie out of the pit of hell. And so we got to have the context So that verse 28 makes sense, you know? We've we've just established the world is corrupt. We know our hearts break, our bodies get sick, our jobs sometimes get terminated. Jesus knows all that as well as anybody. And in verse 29, he says, this is the purpose to which you have been called. He knew us, he predestined us. To what end? It's that we be conformed to the image of his son. That block of marble, his purpose is to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. That you, the block of marble, become like Christ. That's the purpose. And you got to remember that. Now, you remember that the next time you encounter a difficult circumstance. You remember that the next time you go through something traumatic. And your first instinct is to ask, What have I done to deserve this? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how does God want to use this to make me more like Christ? Now that takes that takes some some commitment. That takes some understanding of His Word. Because in your notes, God doesn't promise that all of our problems eventually go away. He promises that he will use all issues of life to draw us closer to him. Uh, we just prayed for a guy, a beloved member of our church. In the back, before the service, we anointed him with oil. We prayed over him. And he, he, I asked him, as I do every time I pray over somebody and anoint them, I asked him, I said, what specifically do you want us to pray for? Now, he's got pains and things that, you know, are, are obviously uh, initiating this this uh, event, but you know what he said? He said, I-, "I need more faith. That God would use this to grow my faith." Wow. Well, that's the right heart. That's the right attitude. It's all about your relationship with him. Ultimately, that's the most important thing. Paul says in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That's relational language. You're in relationship with Christ. And even the difficult times, he's using them. That's what Romans 8:28 means. And you say, no, wait a minute, does that mean God's using these, does that mean that God causes these instances in my life to draw me closer to him? Did God cause me to lose my job? Did God cause my spouse to leave me? Did God cause my loved one to to die? No. What this is saying is that we live in a fallen world. That stuff all exists and has existed since Genesis chapter 3. But because God is sovereign, he uses that to accomplish his purposes in a fallen world. And we are the beneficiaries of his sovereignty. We are under our own curse, you understand. And God is a God of justice. And so that curse remains on us until we come by faith. And it's lifted in an eternal sense. But we still function in a temporary way in this mess called planet Earth. And He, because he loves us, he uses all of the elements of this fallen place to draw us to him into a sweeter relationship. That's what it means. And when we understand that, it makes a big, big difference. You know, Joseph, God had his hand upon Joseph. We're gonna read about Joseph eventually because we're in Genesis on on the weekends. Yeah, Joseph had a vision. He had a dream early in that story that his brothers would all bow down and serve him. And he shared it with them and they got mad, go figure. And they threw him in a pit, and they faked his death, and they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt, and he works for Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, and he gets thrown in prison to rot. And then he, he forms a, a bond with a fellow prisoner, and he blesses this guy. That guy gets released, forgets all about Joseph. And Joseph wastes away in prison for several more years. And then the Pharaoh has a dream, and Joseph's name is mentioned. And immediately they call for Joseph and he comes and within hours he goes from being a prisoner to being the prime minister of a nation. And God elevates him and fulfills the prophecy of that initial dream. And when Joseph's own brothers come to Egypt and they do in fact end up bowing before him, what does he say to them? He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that is the sovereign God that we serve. All things work together. They all work together. We're not promised an overnight fix on any issue. Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What's the next thing you want to hear from Jesus? But I told him no. And yet that's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said, you want him to say, I'm not going to let him mess with you, Peter. No, he said, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you know what? Sometimes we wanna hear God say, I'm not gonna let anything bad happen to you. I'm gonna make sure everything that happens is to your liking. That's what we wanna hear, but that's not what we get. What we get is what Peter got. Somebody has prayed for you. Who has prayed for you? The Holy Spirit. He has interceded for you. And what is the object of that? That ultimately, you're going to be more like Jesus. And that is far better than anything you could come up with to pray for. And this is the wisdom of God, that he uses evil to bring glory to himself. It must tick Satan off. Think about every ploy, every tactic, every stratagem that our ancient foe concocts just backfires, blows up right in his face. Because God has this way of bringing glory to himself. Now, In verse 28, 29, there's a word there. It's the word conformed. That's where our focus ought to be. But there are people who don't focus on the word conformed. There's another word in there that they focus on. All right? And it's the word predestined. It's the word predestined. Because look at verse 30, it also uses that word. It says, to those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So it's amazing, uh, depending on your theological background, your, your doctrinal bent, where you let your focus rest when you read the word of God, it's in, in the same chapter, my charismatic buddies, my charismatic friends, they will focus on the word, uh, uh, you know, they'll focus on the word, uh, the phrase wordless groans, all right? my Calvinist buddies will focus on the word predestined. And they'll fixate on that because when they see that word, they, they, they hold to a concept that God predestines us for salvation. Now, is that true? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, an accompanying view is that God predestines some for damnation. We don't see that in Scripture. We don't see that in Scripture. But what I want you to understand is that There is a concept here that Paul is putting forth, that God looks, he calls us, he predestines us to come by faith, to be saved, to be born again. And it's an unsettling thought to think that your eternity was established before time began by God the Father. Now, it's a a complicated topic, and obviously we don't have time to delve deeply into this, predestination, election, and all that. There's a wealth of verses dealing with man's salvation in terms of God's sovereignty and choosing of us. There's also a wealth of verses that deal with man's salvation having to do with, with the free will of man and submitting to and surrendering to God. Here's what I know. The will of man and the sovereignty of God are both taught in Scripture. You know what I do when I see two concepts taught in Scripture? I teach them. I believe them both. You say, but do you understand how that works together? No, I don't. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I get it. There are others who say that they do, and normally if they say that they do, they either deny the sovereignty of God or they deny the free will of man. I don't deny either because I see them both taught. You say, well, how do they work together? How do you choose God and he chooses you? I don't know, but it works. And there's a tension there. And I've got to be okay with that tension. Tension, Just because I can't get my three pounds of fallen matter around it doesn't mean that God doesn't understand it and work it out beautifully. I'm just glad he does. All right? And so when we look at this word, the way that you ought to see it is that he's in control, that he's sovereign, that he chooses you. Okay? The concept of being chosen. And we need to embrace that, that you've been chosen chosen, uh, that you you come to faith in Christ, you have a chosen status, okay? You are chosen because God made you so, and for no other reason. There's nothing about you that warrants his choosing of you. It's all by his sovereignty, you know? I, we go to the grocery store in the summertime. We love watermelon. Have you ever watched people try to pick a watermelon in, in the grocery store? It's rather comical, isn't it? They're out there doing all these technical things. You know, they're slapping it, and they're holding it up, and they're looking for the yellow spot or the little sugar spots. They take a cantaloupe and roll it down the aisle, you know. (laughs) That one's fading a little, right? Uh, That's no good, not ready yet. You know, we don't know what we're doing. And we don't choose it uh, because of our ability to recognize what's good about it. It's, It's really just, it is what it is, right? God doesn't choose you because of your own innate merit. Now, you respond to him, but it's all you have a chosen status is what we need to hold to. Because in your notes, the totality of the believer's journey depends on a sovereign God. You've got to hold to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. Because of him, and I want to put these words one at a time up on the screen to show you how blessed you are as a believer, and what these concepts mean. So the first word is predestined. In the Greek, this is prorizo, and it means to decide beforehand. So yes, to select in advance. Is predestination a thing in Scripture? It absolutely is. It's right here. Uh, Now, your will may play a role in it, and God can do that sovereignly without compromising His character, Uh, but those He predestined... He also, in the next word, is called. He called you. I want you to think of how you came to Christ. Did you come to Christ all by yourself? Uh, There's nobody here that can claim that. God used various things in your life. There were people in your life, perhaps, that were praying for you, that invited you. I had lunch today with a man. Somebody invited him to go to a Christian concert years ago, gave his life to Christ at that concert. And there are many, many stories like that. But when you come to faith, it's because you were called. And then because he called you, he also, the next word, is justified. He justified you. Now, what does that mean? That's an essential moment in your salvation. It means you are declared righteous. You're not righteous on your own. In fact, you're still walking around in this bag of tainted, corrupt man flesh. All right? And so God has declared you righteous, even though physically you're not. He has credited his righteousness to your account. You can't justify yourself, only God can justify you. And those he justified, he also, and this is a beautiful word, he glorified. He glorified, and you know what? That's a future event. Are you, anybody in here glorified right now? None of you are glowing, all right? Uh, That is something that you become when you stand in the presence of a holy God one day. It's a future event. It's it's that future tense of salvation. You were saved. That's your justification. You are being saved. That's your sanctification. And you will be saved one day. That's your glorification. And that means you're going to dispense with this fallen vessel that you are inhabiting right now and you will no longer have the flesh or your own uh, temptations to contend with anymore and you will be perfect before the Lord but here's the deal even though that's a future event he describes it in the past tense why does he do that because his word is good because your salvation is secure if your salvation were not secure if you could lose your salvation he would not speak of your glorification in the past tense He speaks of it as already having happened because he doesn't break his promise. And so, what this means is, what all this means is, in your notes, that without relying on the Spirit and sovereignty of God, there is no practical difference between a believer and an unbeliever. You're just a lost theologian, otherwise. You just know all the right things. But you got to rely on the spirit and the sovereignty of God. There There should be something practical to all this truth. You don't just believe and trust the Lord for your eternity. Theoretically, will that save you? Yes, but that's not all he saved you for, is eternity. He saved you to live this out right now in an evidentiary way. Because... Eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his spirit comes to reside in you. He that is eternal comes to reside in he that is flesh. And now you have eternal life. You have eternal life. And it makes a difference right now because he's changed you for eternity. So there are four things I want to close with. Four things practically that we can do First of all, admit weakness and welcome the Spirit's help. You just admit it. I'm I'm, I'm just a block of marble. I need to become like Christ. And a block of marble does not carve itself into Jesus. I need the Spirit to do that. So this is how His power is manifested daily in your life. You boast in your weakness as Paul did and you are made strong. Number two, you be comforted by knowing that he prays on your behalf. That ought to fill you with such uh, peace and comfort uh, so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because somebody else who knows the will of God perfectly is going to his uh, throne on your behalf. You've got the Holy Spirit in your corner contending for you. Number three, you trust Trust God to work out the details of your present situation for his glory, for his purpose. No matter what's going on in your life, God's using it. You're asking the right question. Not, what have I done to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? It's, how will God use this to make me more like him? How will God use this to make me more like him? And then number four, rest. Rest in the security of your salvation from beginning to end. You didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. You are firmly in the grip of Jesus Christ. He says, all the Father has given to me, no one may take away. You're right. in And not only that, he says the Father's grip. You got Jesus' grip on you, you got the Father's grip on his grip. That's a double divine grip. Ain't nothing getting through that. And so we got to practice these four things, and it will make a difference. You you test me on that, all right? You practice those four things every day, and you see if it doesn't make a difference in your life. Life in the third person. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I uh, ask your blessing upon this wonderful body, this group of people here. God, they're hungry for you. That's why they're here. Would you give them victory every day? Would you fill them with your spirit? Would you give them the knowledge that they are, uh, they are redeemed by you, that you have their best interests at heart, that the spirit goes on their behalf and prays according to your will? May they live victoriously, God. I was so encouraged earlier tonight when a sweet lady from this congregation shared with me that she invited a friend to come to our Christmas program, someone who doesn't know Jesus, God. And my heart leaps for joy to hear that. May we all be shaped and molded into bold emissaries of the gospel for you. By your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.